This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey there, it's Debbie, and welcome to Playback Friday. Most Fridays, I re-release one of my favorite conversations from the archive. So unless you're a longtime listener of the show, there's a good chance you haven't heard this one yet. And even if you have, you just might get something completely different from it listening to it this time around. Communication has been so important so that we can all be on the same page. And along with communication comes honesty, which may not always be easy for the teacher or the parent. Because there may be times where I don't want to share something because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or I don't want anybody to feel bad about something that's happened. But the only way that we can do what's best for the child and the only way that a child can continue to show growth is if there is honesty about what's going on in the classroom. Welcome to the Tilt Parenting Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and today we're fortunate enough to be talking with Becca Wertheim, a second grade teacher at an inclusion school in North Carolina. What I hear from parents over and over again is that navigating the world of school is one of, if not the biggest challenges. So I think it's really important to talk with teachers and school administrators so we can better understand what things look like from behind their desks and ultimately figure out how to strengthen the dynamic between parents and teachers so that our child can benefit. As you'll hear in just a minute, Becca absolutely loves what she does and especially the role she has of learning how to meet the unique needs and learning styles of the differently wired kids in her classroom. And she shares a lot of useful insight for parents who want to have better communication and support both in and out of the classroom. To learn more about TILT, the revolution for parents raising differently wired kids, visit www.tiltparenting.com. And now on with the show. Welcome to the show, Becca. Hi, Debbie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you were able to come on. And on a weekend, by the way, we're recording this on a Saturday. So I really appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm happy to be here. You know, I was just thinking about this before the call. I don't think we've ever met in person, have we? No, we haven't. But I feel like we have. (laughs) I do too. Like, we've known each other virtually and over the phone for a super long time now. Yeah, since I was 15. So really? Almost, I guess, nine years, almost 10 years. Wow. Well, (laughs) one of these days we'll have to meet in person. Yeah. We'll have to make that happen. Definitely. But anyway, I'm really glad we were able to do this. So as a way to start our conversation, would you mind just telling us a little bit about where and what you teach and what the focus of your school is? Yeah. So I teach second grade at Claxton Elementary School, which is in Asheville, North Carolina. And my school is an inclusion school. So what that means is that students who are identified as having disabilities or identified as gifted and talented are all included in a general education classroom along with their peers of the same age. And students are provided with the necessary support or accommodations and modifications needed to best fit their educational needs. So in my classroom, I have a variety of students who learn in different ways and they all work together and they're with each other 
for the majority of the school day. And it's really great to see everyone working together and being together and appreciating each other's own unique gifts and talents. How many kids do you have in a classroom then? What does that actually look like? This year, I have 20 students, so I'm pretty lucky to have such a small class size. And in the past, I will typically have about four or five students who are identified as having some type of disability or identified as um, learning differently than their peers. So it can be up to a quarter of the class. And is it just you in the classroom with these kids or do you have an assistant working with you? I'm very fortunate that I do have an assistant. Most second grade classes in my state and I believe across the nation do not have assistants. Typically assistants are in kindergarten and sometimes first grade. So I do have an assistant, which makes a huge difference. It allows me to provide small group instruction for the majority of the day to really help meet the needs of all my students. And I'm just curious about this idea of an inclusion school. It's actually something that here in the Netherlands, which, you know, it's a very different educational system. And in theory, they believe in inclusion education. But in practice, it doesn't always work out that way. And oftentimes, kids who are differently wired or learn in different ways, if they're struggling to fit in that classroom, then they may not be able to continue in that school. Or there are some schools who say, you know, we just can't really support or accommodate this. So I'm curious in your school, it sounds like this is kind of one of the tenets of your school that you're identifying as an inclusion school. Yeah. So does it work? You know, that's a big statement. But generally speaking, does it work having an inclusion classroom? What's your experience been? Yeah, well, I will say that in my experience, it is um, is very important and it is working as long as the support is provided. So I know that, um, and what I mean by that support is that students who may learn differently will may need that extra support of another adult working with them one-on-one or in a small group setting, and it'll be a teacher who is licensed in special education. So that's different from having an instructional assistant or a teacher assistant like I have. It would be an adult who is actually licensed in special education to come in and support students who may be learning differently than their peers. And I'm grateful that in my school, we have a lot of a lot of support in that area. And so that may look differently from school to school, district to district, and of course, state to state, country to country. But in my school, I've had a positive experience. And I think it's been awesome to teach so many different types of learners. And it's really helped me become a better teacher as well, because I've had to form my instruction based on the way that my kids respond to um, what I'm teaching. So it's my job as a teacher to constantly be aware of how my students are responding. And I have to do formative assessments all day long. And what I mean by formative assessment is it doesn't mean kids are sitting down and taking a test. A formative assessment means that I'm using observation and anecdotal notes to see what my students are retaining and what they may need more support with. And if something isn't working, like if my teaching approach is not working and my students or a small group of my students or one or two of my students is not learning, then I have to change my approach to meet them where they're at. So an inclusion model, it does take a lot of work because classroom teachers, I mean, really, it's kind of like I'm teaching 20 individual 
lessons versus one lesson to 20 students because every single student is going to need something a little bit different. And the way that I provide the, that differentiation will look different for every subject and every day. But um, it does take more work, but I think it's worth it in the long run, especially for the students, for them to be included with their peers, for everybody to be included together and to really learn from each other and each other's unique learning styles. So I might have students who are more talented when it comes to drawing or building or creating. And although they may be identified by the law as having a disability, they have this unique gift that can be shared with their peers and they can help teach something in their own unique way through music or creativity. So really um, an inclusion model is about seeing those unique gifts and talents in every student and using it to everyone's advantage so that we can really learn from each other. Yeah, I like that. I I think the focus on inclusion learning or the focus of a lot of conversations is on the benefit for the student with the difference. And I like what you just said, because it really is about how how everyone can benefit from that, not just the differently wired student or the child with a learning difference is benefiting from being with, you know, more neurotypical peers. But the benefits kind of go both ways. Yeah, definitely. And even as a teacher, I have had kids present their own learning to me in such a unique way that it's changed my perspective. And I've learned from them like, wow, this is a really awesome way that they learned this and they connected with this content. Maybe I can use this in the future for other students. So really, it's just this classroom community. We're all learning from each other, the teachers and the students. I I know that you can talk specifically about what's happening in your classroom this year, but kind of generally speaking, what are some of the neurological differences or learning differences that you've had in your classroom with students that you've had to address and support? Um, Well, I've had experience teaching students with autism, students with ADHD, and I've had the opportunity to get to know so many different kinds of learners. So whether a student is identified as having a disability, really every single kid learns in their own unique way. So any teacher is going to be exposed to different learning styles. And like I mentioned earlier, it's our job as teachers to really tweak our instruction to meet those unique learning styles of our students. And that will be different every single year. But yeah, just in my, this is my third year teaching and I've already had the opportunity to work with so many awesome students who, who do see the world differently maybe than typical peers, but I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed working with, with all my different types of students. Well, I'm sure it keeps things interesting, keeps you on your toes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm curious, when you were studying to become a teacher, were you specifically trained in learning how to support students who think differently? I asked this because I interviewed someone for another podcast about dyslexia, and she taught for more than 15 years and then went on to get her master's degree as a reading specialist. And in none of that time, either as a teacher or in her education, was she trained specially to even understand what dyslexia was. And and she was a reading specialist. So she really had to do a lot of work. And now that's her focus is supporting kids with dyslexia. So I'm just you know, I'm curious to know in the course of your training, whether in university or things you've done after that, have you learned specific skills to support differently wired kids? Or how do you approach that? And where does your, your foundation come from for that? Yeah, that's such a great question. 
At my university, I went to the University of North Carolina at Asheville, and I did take several classes that were specifically on students with special needs or different learning styles. And I also majored in psychology. So I took psychology of exceptional children, and I really did have the opportunity to explore that area, which I loved. And not every university will provide the same courses, but general education students in college will learn about exceptional children. I don't have a degree in special education specifically, but like I mentioned earlier in my school, since we are an inclusion model, we do have teachers who are, are certified special education teachers who are pushing in to my classroom to support. Um, they would support with kids who are identified as exceptional children. So although general education classroom teachers may not have that specific degree, they will typically have some type of experience in college. So like I said, in my situation, I had elementary education alongside psychology. So I, I was able to explore that area. And it is something that I may want to explore more in the future. And I have thought about going into special education specifically and getting a degree in that area. But at this time, I, I don't have a special degree. So I just have to ask, is it is it because you find working with kids who go through the world differently? Is is that becoming a special interest of yours through working with the kids you've had in your classroom? Yeah, definitely. I'm very interested and intrigued. And even in college, when I was taking courses, mainly my psychology courses, I was very intrigued by children who learn differently, or just not as typical as their peers. And so um, after my three years of teaching, I've just come to love those students. And it's, it is very interesting to see the world through their eyes. And like I said earlier, there have been times where students will show me something in a way that I've never thought of it before. So I am learning from them just like they're learning from me. Yeah, that's awesome. Love that. And they're obviously lucky to have you as a teacher with that kind of open-mindedness and the willingness to kind of see the <laughs> gifts. It's not something that every teacher is able to do. And it's so exciting when teachers are able to really appreciate and enjoy different ways of approaching problems and seeing the world and approaching school and all of that kind of stuff. So that's really great to hear. And that's why support is so important in this school as well, because I do, I am fortunate to have support of other adults and I'm not in a room by myself. But I, I can say honestly that if it was just me in my classroom without any support pushing in, then it would be very difficult. And so it is important that teachers are provided with the support that they need to be able to give students the support that they need. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure every teacher listening to this is not is nodding our head vigorously. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know for a lot of parents, and I know this is definitely was the case with my husband and me, a lot of parents of differently wired kids, you know, can have, I would say, a tricky relationship with their child's teacher. And, you know, we were talking before the call about how Asher's last year in school was in second grade, and he was in a public school in Seattle. He had an IEP, and he had this really awesome young teacher who worked really hard to try and help Asher be successful in the classroom. But, you know, I was the parent in our family who did all the school pickups and volunteering and meetings and handled all the phone calls and all the emails. And yeah. <laughs> I really had to spend a a lot of time working with this teacher and their 
was a lot of back and forth communication, you know, daily communication some of the time, where we were having to check in on Asher's, you know, he had this behavioral support system. So I had to check in to see if he earned his points for the day, because then that would be reflected in what we did at home. And sometimes even just picking him up, you know, depending on what had happened that day, we'd always make eye contact, the teacher and I, when I picked him up outside the school, and I'd either get an excited smile with a thumbs up, or more often a deer in headlights expression. (laughs) And, you know, on the really bad days, he'd ask if I had a few minutes to talk. So all that to say, it can be a tricky relationship, you know, having been on the parent side of it, I know how tough that was from my perspective, and also always trying to understand and empathize with the teacher's perspective. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com slash 60TILT. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. That was a very long-winded way of asking a question. (laughs) I'd love to hear from your perspective what those relationships are like. 
When you have a child in your class who needs extra support, how do you manage that relationship with the parent? And, you know, what are your goals in that relationship? That is such a great question. And I think that being a parent of any child, it's difficult to balance that communication and to make sure that you're constantly keeping up with everything that's going on because there is so much going on in just one school day. And so I would say for all of my parents, all my students, communication is by far the most important piece of my school year. And building relationships, especially with parents of my students who are exceptional learners, is so important because they do have specific behavioral needs, um, behavioral plans. They have specific academic and social goals. And we have to work at us as a team in order for the, that child to show growth. And the only way for us to work successfully as a team is to build those relationships. So a couple of ways that I do that at my school, in our school district, it is common for teachers to actually do home visits at the beginning of the school year. And what that would look like is at the beginning of the year, it's offered to parents. And so I offer it to my parents. If they would like for me to come over and visit their home, I'm happy to do that. And I know that the first time I heard about home visits, I kind of felt like, oh my goodness, this is so, it, it seemed so uncomfortable or just this area that I wasn't so sure of. And after reading more about the research behind home visits and seeing the benefits like year after year, I'm so happy that I do them. And again, it's, it's optional. So some parents are not so into it, but the majority of families are. And it's such a great way to just informally uh, at the beginning of the year bond and get to know each other. And the kids are so excited to be able to share their own life and their personal, their favorite toys or their favorite books at home or what they like to do. And so I would say that's one of the ways that I start out the beginning of the year with that um, building that strong foundation. And then it's important to um, keep consistent communication. And I do have some parents this year and years past that I am communicating with every single day, whether that's through a email or phone call or even a text message. But communication has been so important so that we can all be on the same page. And along with communication comes honesty, which may not always be easy for the teacher or the parent because there may be times where I don't want to share something because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or I don't want anybody to feel bad about something that's happened. But the only way that we can do what's best for the child and the only way that a child can continue to show growth is if there is honesty about what's going on in the classroom. And oftentimes kids will behave differently at home than they do at school. And that's because at school, they're having to do different tasks than at home. Not to say that home isn't challenging as well, because it can be um, just like being at home can be just as exciting as school. But at school, there are less adults. And so students, you know, that, that attention has to be divided and that can create a lot of challenges. So a second way that I help parents kind of see what the day-to-day, what our routine is like is I invite them to spend a day in the classroom. And it's every time I've had a parent do that, it's been such a positive experience for the parent, the child, and me. Um, it get the child so excited to have the parent there for the day and the parent gets to see the, the whole routine of the day and really 
all the ins and outs and the things that we have to accomplish in such a short amount of time. And it gives me as a teacher good talking points for where we can go back and look at that school day and say, you know, when this happened, how, how do you feel about how I handled that? Or how would you have handled that at home? Or do you think there's a different way that maybe your child would have responded better? And just being so open and honest has to be the basis of that teamwork. Yeah. And I'm grateful that I work in a district that allows that. So I would encourage parents to reach out to the classroom teacher and just ask, you know, is it possible for me to come spend the day with you or even part of the day and just ask. And and I think more than likely teachers would be happy to have them. And I think it would be um, a great experience for everyone. Yeah, and it's really interesting. When Asher was in first grade and he was in a private school, we knew we were going to be transitioning to a public school with an IEP. And as part of the process of getting all that paperwork in order to support the IEP, someone had to sit in the classroom and observe him at the private school. And they had to kind of like take notes on Asher's behavior and actions in the classroom. So it wasn't me. I didn't get to be in the classroom. But the notes that this person took, it was basically like a play by play of everything he did over the course of an hour. And it was so fascinating to me. It was like a window into a world that I had no idea existed. Because, you know, as parents, we do only see what we see at home. And you're right, the environment at school is different. And I could see how if the child isn't too distracted by having the parent there, how informative and eye opening that could be for a parent to get a better sense of what's really going on and things that maybe things they may not recognize as challenges, you could see how in a classroom that could be really difficult. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, definitely. And I really do love looking back on the day and having those discussions with parents on asking them their opinion. I mean, because you're you're the parent, you know your child best. So I love hearing, you know, um, parents' perspective of, is there a different way that you think I could have, you know, approached this or something that works better for you? And it, it, it really, it's a great experience. So I encourage parents to to reach out and see if that's an option. And I have some parents that come, they'll come more than one day a year, different points in the year, because that's another thing for parents to realize is that kids change so much during different times of the school year. So um, depending on when there are school breaks, like if there's a long holiday break, then behaviors can be different. Or from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, there's such drastic change. So that's another important piece is maybe observing different points in the school year. Yes, absolutely. They're very different. We used to have, well... We called them, you know, seasons. There was the fall regression and the Christmas funk and, you know, all these different. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Well, also, you know, you were saying you could learn a lot from parents. And I always felt as a parent, you know, with a child in school, part of the dynamic of my relationship with the teacher was one of feeling like I did want to support them. You know, here's what we're doing at home. Here are the therapies we're doing or here's what our strategies are. So, A lot of my job was sometimes even educating the teacher on different things. But at the same time, I was so in need of more information. So it was kind of like this, it never, never got to be perfectly symbiotic. But I remember really feeling sometimes like I want them to tell me what to do, you know, I don't have all the answers here. And then the teachers were coming to me wanting help. And so I'm wondering, do you have parents or have you had parents in the past who've kind of looked at you to be that beacon of information or to give them strategies because they may be seeing your child thriving in your classroom and they want to bring that home as well? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, Debbie, I think so many parents feel the same way um, that you do, like you just mentioned. And I think so many teachers feel this way as well. Of We want to know as much as we can from the parents of um, what's working at home or things that are going on at home or maybe um, anything that, that we should, any additional information that we should know. We want to soak it all up. And then, of course, parents, they want to know what is going on at school and how can, how can things be used at home. So it is kind of a cycle of, of, again, learning from each other. And that's why that communication and those constant discussions are important because teachers and parents are learning from each other. And I've had certain things that I'll do in the classroom, especially uh, like visuals or different visuals that might work in the classroom that parents may also try at home. And that way the child's having consistency across the whole day of seeing the same thing in school and seeing the same thing at home. So an example of what I mean by visual is like a checklist. So if a child has a checklist of tasks, they have to do something first and then they can do something after they complete a task. You, it's important for them to have consistency. So if there is something like that in the classroom, then having that same visual at home could really help bridge a transition from being in the classroom to being at home. They're still having to complete tasks, whether they're at home or they're at school, but having consistency across how that's presented to them can be very valuable. So that's just one example of how something can be used in school and at home. But really, you hit the nail on the head and with what you mentioned earlier and how it does, it seems like we're just always constantly trying to, to learn more information. And sometimes parents will want me to have more information than maybe I know, but then I may want to know more information than the parent knows. So just keeping that constant communication, working together as a team, like I can't stress enough the teamwork aspect and how important that is. And, and finding answers together even. Like there have been times where parents will have questions and well, maybe we'll both have a question about something. So I'll reach out to support staff at school to try to find an answer. Parents may try to find an answer outside of school by doing a different kind of research. And then we can meet back together and discuss what we found and find a common ground of what's best. That's great. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. 
That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. So because second grade is a year, you know, in my experience and from what I hear a lot from parents who are part of the TILT community and friends who are kind of on a similar journey, the first and second grade seem to be pretty critical years because it seems like those are the years when there are different ways of being differently wired, you know, ADHD, Asperger's, different things going on. It tends to really become magnified in a first or second grade year because, Mm -hmm. you know, up until that point, some of their behavior may have seemed appropriate maybe immature developmentally, but for us, and again, what I've seen with so many other families, that's when the behavior of, you know, some kids starts to stand out more. It's kind of like, hmm, something is going on here that may not be typical. So I'm curious, as a teacher, does that happen to you? You know, at an inclusion school, it seems like going into a school year, you kind of know who your kids are, who have different needs, but has it happened where you've been teaching and you've been the one to discover or bring to someone's attention? You know, I think there's something going on here that needs to be assessed or looked at more closely. Yeah, definitely. Um, like you said, you know, first and second grade are very pivotal, important years. And most kids are typically identified, in, at least in my experience, in first grade or second grade as where an IEP is put in place. But there have been times where teachers will in second grade or, um, you know, perhaps even third grade will identify new behaviors that maybe were not, did not stand out as much in kindergarten or first grade. Like you mentioned in kindergarten and first grade, some behaviors may just seem like a child is maturing a little bit later than their peers. But by that second and third grade age, you can really see what is typical and what may not be as typical. So if that does happen, thankfully, like, I, um, like I've said, my district has this place where as a classroom teacher, I can, I can share what my observations and uh, I would need to keep detailed logs and track data on things that I observe. And then there's, there would be a place where somebody else would come in and observe. And, and if, if it needs to be, then they would continue along that evaluation process. But usually second grade is like the year <laughs> where where a lot of those IEPs are put into place. So it just depends. But most schools have or should have good systems in place so that the classroom teacher feels comfortable reaching out to the right people if they do notice things that are atypical. Or again, along the same lines, if parents have concerns, parents, of course, have the right to reach out to the classroom teacher and share those concerns. And um, again, that's where an observation in the classroom, uh, a parent observation in the classroom may be very important in case a child is, you know, maybe behaving, behaving differently at home than at school. So, if a teacher notices it or a parent notices it, they should be able to reach out to the right people. Right. You just touched upon what was actually going to be my next question. So and my last question, actually, before we say goodbye. So if there are parents listening to this who have concerns about their child in school, whether it's academic or social, what other mm-hmm. advice would you give them in terms of how to approach a school or teacher in order to advocate for their child? So you just suggested asking to observe in the classroom. Any other specific tips you can share with us? Well, I would say that the most important thing is to reach out sooner rather than later. Because even though it may be a minor concern, maybe uh, maybe a parent is noticing something that you're not sure, like maybe it is typical, maybe it's not typical, really just on the fence, I would still bring it to the teacher's attention 
And then that way it can be, as a classroom teacher, it can be on my radar as well. And hopefully parents will feel comfortable doing that. I know that as a classroom teacher, for me, like there would be no judgment there. And I'm so happy when parents are open and honest with me. So I would say to reach out sooner rather than later and just through email or phone or whatever is best and and just be honest about what as a parent, maybe what you're seeing or what you're concerned about, maybe what you've noticed at home. And then also feel free to ask questions. Have you noticed this at school? Have you noticed um, this behavior during this time of the day? Have you noticed this behavior on a certain time of the week? Like is the beginning of the week different from the end of the week or mornings versus afternoons? And just making sure parent, you know, as a parent that you feel comfortable reaching out and asking those questions to a teacher. Um, I would also say it's important to set up a face-to-face meeting because things can be kind of interpreted differently through the phone or through email. So having a face-to-face meeting even before coming in to observe in the classroom could be very beneficial. And this is also a great way for the teacher to show the classroom environment to the parent and really show it through the lens of their child. So if I have a parent come in, I'm able to show the classroom to that parent and really walk them through the school day saying, this is where your child sits during this part of the day. Or I notice that when they have choice seating time, your child loves to sit over here. And just really um, letting parents see that environment before they come in to do maybe an observation for the day. So definitely reaching out sooner rather than later, hopefully feeling comfortable and, and knowing that the teacher is there to help and support and that as teachers, we do want to know, we want to know those concerns so that we can start thinking about ways to support the child and the parents. That's great. Thank you. I mean, that's a big part of TILT is really wanting to encourage parents to feel comfortable being open about what's happening and what's difficult and what's different for them. Because as you said, I think there are so many people who are afraid they're going to be judged or their child's going to be judged. But I really believe so firmly that we have to start talking about these things openly and that it's not a bad thing. It's not a taboo. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It is what it is. And it really is only through true openness that these kids are going to be able to thrive and feel good about who they are. Yes, I completely agree. I am so like, I'm so happy that the Tilt community exists now. I think it's so important. You're exactly right. This does need to be talked about more. And I really want parents to feel empowered about talking to teachers and really working as a team with those classroom teachers or other support at the school. And I just really want parents to know that as teachers, we do care so much about every single child's education. And that's why we're there. And we wouldn't go in every morning doing what we're doing if we didn't care. And I know so many parents um, understand that and appreciate it. So as long as there's that open stream of communication and consistency and good relationships, then so much growth can happen just within one school year. And it's really beautiful to see. That's awesome. I wish I could bring Asher back and you could be his <laughs> teacher for a year. Or maybe I come to the Netherlands and teach for a All year. All right. Hopefully we'll talk about that. I love that. <laughs> But this has been really so insightful. And, you know, when we ask parents what kinds of things they're struggling with when it comes to their differently wired child, right up there at the top is education and finding the right fit or figuring out what to do when their child's not thriving at school. So this has been fantastic information for parents who are in that space and also for parents whose children may not yet be in school, but that's coming up for them soon. So just great information. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And it's been great to talk with you today. Yeah, great to talk to you too. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into the Tilt Parenting Podcast. 
To learn more about Becca and to check out the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash session 16. It's hard to believe, but it's been nearly three months since we launched Tilt and the Tilt Parenting Podcast. We've been so excited about the response to the show and to what we're doing online. So I actually just wanted to take a minute to thank you, the listeners, for being a part of our audience and for helping us spread the word and leaving all those great reviews on iTunes. It is so appreciated and it means a lot to both me and Asher to know that what we're creating isn't only resonating, but that it's actually helping parents to support their kids. So thank you. For more information on Tilt, the revolution for parents raising differently wired kids, please visit us at www.tiltparenting.com. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model. So that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt-free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.